0: Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844 900 Buck. That's 844 900
1: 2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me today. We have a lot to discuss. I've got good news for you. It's not really news, it's just a reminder. Reminder that there are still men and women of courage, integrity, character, patriotism. There are still plenty of men and women with those characteristics in this country. And there is no place that you will find more men and women who fall into those categories, men and women of, of virtue. Uh, than in the United States military. I think we got a strong reminder of that today from one of the most memorable White House press conferences in quite some time given by the White House Chief of Staff, General Kelly. Uh, This served multiple purposes. I believe it set right at some level All that had been sullied and all the lies and confusion and manufactured outrage of yesterday over a phone call from our commander in chief to a gold star widow. But I think it also refocused the American people on how much we owe to the men and women who wear the uniform the sacrifices that they have made, and that that should be sacred to us. And to all of us who are decent and reasonable and responsible citizens in this country, it is sacred to us. But there were some who chose to make an issue of that yesterday. There are some, it seems, on the left and the Democrat Party who believe that there is really nothing that is sacred, not when it poses an opportunity to take down this administration. There's nothing that is beyond the pale, nothing that is out of bounds if you can actually hurt the Trump administration. Up to and including playing politics with gold star families gold star widows and the whole notion of the sanctity of those who give their lives in the defense of this country we talked about this yesterday and I shared with you my initial sense based on the reporting that I had seen that I just didn't believe I just didn't believe that Trump would disrespect a gold star family uh, a widow in this case I, I just didn't believe it under the circumstances i did not believe it and i know we can talk about what happened last summer later on in the hour if you want to, but i'm focused on this incident because the media was going all in on this yesterday and there were reports oh yes a congresswoman says that he was disrespectful to the family disrespectful to the widow on the phone it was a lie it was a lie And I know that the initial impulse of many on the left would be to say, well, the the widow herself, according to the media, claimed that there was disrespect. I, as I said yesterday on the show, am quite certain that she was convinced of that and put in a very precarious position as well by the congresswoman who, as far as I can tell, wouldn't know a thing about actual service certainly not service that could cost anyone life or limb, to her country. A congresswoman who was willing to make a mockery of the most sacred aspects of the military and those in this country who don't not only serve in it but are part of the families and part of the fabric of what supports the military abroad. That was all secondary to her. She saw an opportunity to go after Trump. She saw an opportunity to play cheap politics, and she took it. Now, you don't have to take my word for any of this. I shared with you yesterday my impressions of it based on everything that I can see and everything that I was hearing. Today, General Kelly stepped in to, I believe, give the final word on all of this, at least to anyone who is willing to listen to reason, and to a man of impeccable background, integrity, and service to this country. I want to walk through some of this press conference with you that Kelly gave. And then I want to put into context the maelstrom, the manufactured maelstrom that we saw yesterday, all in an effort to try and hurt this administration. And it was based on lies. General Kelly is not only a distinguished member of the uh, armed services, although now I know he's chief of staff, he's in a civilian role, but he's also a gold star dad. That came into the discussion today. He shared in, in no uncertain terms what his advice was. He walked through, in this press conference, he walked through every stage of what happens in that terrible Moment in those series of events afterwards where we lose one of our best, one of our bravest on the field of battle. He walked through the entire process so that people who have no familiarity with it and the war. There is a warrior class in this country and their families. About one percent of Americans are really are directly involved in and serving in the United States military. And then their families obviously have a, a direct connection to everything going on with the military as well. But a vast majority of the country has no direct familiarity with military service or even immediate family members in military service. So General Kelly wanted everyone to know exactly what happens and the solemnity and the dignity with which we all should view that process. And he said when he spoke to President Trump, who had decided to call the families of the four special forces soldiers killed in Niger, he told him, one, that it was, uh, inc- it was very, di- it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, here is, he in fact told the president not to do it at all.
2: Some presidents have elected to call. All presidents, I believe, have elected to send letters. Um, if you elect to call a family like this, it is about the most difficult thing you could imagine. There's no perfect way To make that phone call. Uh, When I took this job uh, and talked to President uh, uh, Trump about how to do it, my first recommendation was he not do
1: it. Not because there's anything wrong with doing it, but because it's so difficult. And because there's no way that even the commander in chief could really understand the situation, the feelings, the emotions, the loss of these gold star families so he was recommending because of the difficulty of the moment look I wouldn't do it but it is the commander-in-chief's choice and the commander-in-chief decided to make those calls and at that point General Kelly gave him advice on how to proceed with those calls
2: typically they all accept the call
1: so he called
2: four people the other day and expressed his condolences in the best way that he could And he said to me, what do I say? Uh, I said to him, sir, there's nothing you can do to lighten the burden on these families. But let me tell you what I tell him. Let me tell you what my best friend, Joe Dunford, told me because he was my casualty officer. He said, Kel, um, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining that 1%. He knew what the possibilities were, because we're at war. And when he died, in the four cases we're talking about in my son's case in Afghanistan, when he died, he was surrounded by the best men on this Earth, his friends. That's what the President tried to say to to four families the other day. I was stunned when I came to work yesterday morning. He was stunned.
1: We all know why. Because General Kelly was in the room when Trump made that call. General Kelly, who not only served his country with true and tremendous honor and distinction, but also lost his son on the field of battle in Afghanistan, lost his own son. He is a gold star dad on top of being a three star general. Kelly says. That the president did his best to communicate that. Remember that phrase that was making the rounds yesterday on the news? He knew what he signed up for. They took this out of context and made it seem like the commander in chief was being flippant, uh, cavalier, nonchalant about it when. Now, based on General Kelly weighing in, we know that's anything but the case. And I didn't believe it yesterday, and you know that if you were listening to this show. Some people were already running for cover. Oh, Trump, how could he? Didn't believe it. I just didn't believe it. And now we know that the media went crazy with a lie because they were trying to take down the administration once again. And that even the sanctity of Soldiers fallen in battle for this country. That's not enough to prevent some Democrats from trying to just score cheap points against this administration, against this commander in chief. Oh, General Kelly goes into more detail. He's appalled by all this. And I want you to hear it from him. And then I want to talk to you about it some more. And I also want to hear your thoughts on all this. 844-900-2825. 844 844- $900. buck. we are going to continue to get into this, and then uh, next hour, national security updates on ISIS, on Kurdistan, on the threat to the homeland, and then some politics in the third hour. Uh, lots, lots coming your way here, team.
2: When I came to work yesterday morning, it broken hearted at what I saw a member of Congress doing. A member of Congress who listened in on a phone call from the President of the United States to a young wife and in his way he tried to express that opinion he's a brave man a fallen hero he knew what he was getting himself into because he enlisted there's no reason to enlist he enlisted and he was where he wanted to be exactly where he wanted to be with exactly the people he wanted to be with when his life was taken that was the message that was the message that was transmitted it stuns me that a member of Congress would have listened in on that conversation. Absolutely stuns me. And I thought, at least that was sacred. You know, when I was a kid growing up, a lot of things were sacred in our country. Women were sacred, looked upon with great honor. That's obviously not the case anymore, as we see from recent cases. Life, the dignity of life, was sacred. That's gone. Religion. That seems to be gone as well. Gold Star families, I think that left in the convention over the summer. I just thought the selfless devotion that brings a man or woman to die on the battlefield, I just thought that, that that might be sacred. And when I listened to this woman and what she was saying and what she was doing on TV, the only thing I could do to collect my thoughts was to go... Walk among the finest men and women on this earth. You can always find them because they're in Arlington National Cemetery. Went over there for an hour and a half. Walked among the stones, some of whom I put there because they were doing what I told them to do when they were killed.
1: I'm wondering if there are any cowards in the media who would like to take issue with General Kelly's account. I'm wondering if any of the... Uh quizzling Democrat media punks from yesterday who are all running around with the story that the president disrespected a Gold Star family, a woman who had just lost her husband on the battlefield in Niger. Do do any of them want to try that now? They were going for it yesterday. I should note that now you have up on CNN, as I'm on air, uh, Leon Panetta, Saying you know the the former Clinton uh, crony and former SEC Def and former uh, agency director that Trump scapegoats to excuse his behavior, so we're we're still now going with Trump is the problem, right? This is the the, the narrative is somehow still that that you know it, it's still Trump is still bad. They lied about what he said yesterday. They ran with this. It was out of context. And as I also noted on this show yesterday, why the heck is some congresswoman going public with what's clearly supposed to be a private call? She was the one that made this all political. I, I criticized the president earlier in the week when he said that other administrations didn't call. And Kelly set that straight today as well. I'm not just saying everything Trump does is good. Everything, oh, Trump, 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 he's amazing, MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. No. When he's good, I say he's good, but I think he's wrong, I'll tell you, I think he's wrong. But he doesn't disrespect a gold star widow on the call to express his condolences to her. That's not Donald Trump. That's not our commander-in-chief. And yesterday, that was the main narrative. That was the storyline. Biggest story across the country. I, I came on the show, I said, I can't believe we have to talk about this. Because I knew it was such a lie. And Kelly was there. So I'm not just saying, oh, this is an administration response to this. Kelly was there during the call, and Kelly instructed Trump on how to make that call. Hence the phrase, he knew what he was signing up for. And I should note, and I thank you, yesterday when I was here on the air, I never wore the uniform. I spent time in the field alongside some who did, but as an analyst, assisting the warfighter. I never wore the uniform. Some of you who did called in yesterday and also reached out to me online to make sure that it was very clear that for those of you who are part of that sacred brotherhood of men and women who wear the uniform, brotherhood and sisterhood, you know what I mean, that sacred group of those who wear the uniform, that to say he or she knew what was going on here and did this of their own will, with the intention of taking risk to their life, risk to their lives, that that's an honorable thing. To say that is to pay homage and to, to give all due respect and honors to those who have lost their lives in battle. Because he did sign up. Because he did want to be there. And so I thank those of you who called in and made sure that that was clear as well. You can go back, look, it's, it's this, the show is taped and we put it all out there in its entirety. You can go and listen to it and you'll see people were calling in and saying exactly that. And now you've got General Kelly, a, a three-star general and a gold star dad, um, out there making it very clear that the only scandal here, the only real degradation, was this congresswoman's decision. To make this a political issue, what Trump was going, Trump decides as the commander in chief to call for next of kin. This is, we all know this as well because of what Kelly told us today and walked us through the process. Trump makes that decision and then he's going to say anything other than the most comforting, respectful things that he can. look, Trump is not the most verbally precise individual, but I think we all know where his heart is when it comes to the military. And that's how I knew that it was a lie yesterday. Now here we are and it's confirmed. And the cowards of the media are trying to cover their tracks. Even some conservatives yesterday, very disappointed to see some of them, you know, running for cover on this one. No no. Trump, yeah, okay. He shouldn't have spoken out of out of school or out of turn on other administrations, but on this issue of this phone call to this Gold Star widow, Commander Chief didn't do anything wrong, and we know that now. My case after my son was killed, his friends were calling us
2: from Afghanistan, telling us what a great guy he was. Those are the only phone calls that really matter. And yeah, the the, uh, letters count to a degree, but uh, there's not much that really can take the edge off what a family member is going through.
1: There's General Kelly saying that the calls that he received from the brothers in arms of his son who was killed in action in Afghanistan, the calls he received from Afghanistan, those are the ones that matter to him. You know, the uh, politics around this is, is really just inexcusable. It shouldn't happen. And I, I know that there will now be a, uh, a, a struggle between some in the media and in politics to push the blame onto one side or the other. I would note that it was the decision of a Democrat Congresswoman, Frederica Wilson of Florida, to engage in this utterly reprehensible behavior, to malign a commander-in-chief, and to further uh, deepen the wounds and make even more difficult the circumstances of a woman who is clearly grieving and facing a uh, a tremendous burden. I should note there are three other families, other spouses as well that receive phone calls who are dealing with that same burden. And the president had no issue in any of those calls. So what is more likely, what is more believable that a Democrat congresswoman manipulated the situation and uh, acted irresponsibly, grotesquely? Or that the president just decided that all of a sudden he doesn't really care about the military and just wanted to wanted to kind of be flippant in this one phone call. You don't have to answer that. I already know what the answer is. You know what the answer is. And we knew what the answer was yesterday before General Kelly made it so abundantly clear. It's so frustrating, you know, the narrative around the uh, the Gold Star family from the Democrat National Convention as well was always that Trump's attacking a Gold Star family. The Democrats decided to put a Gold Star father up on the podium as a political weapon against Trump. They are the ones that do this over and over again. Trying to take the the grief of people in this country, not just in the case of somebody lost in, in battle and in their their families, but, you know, the Democrats with the... with. A few of the nine eleven widows. There were a lot of nine eleven widows, as all of you know. There are almost three thousand Americans who lost their lives, and there are also widowers and children without parents. And but there were a handful who became very political, who were cutting campaign commercials for John Kerry in a presidential election. And then when anybody would say, "Well, I'm, I'm not sure that they have." foreign policy expertise. Oh, how dare you? How dare you criticize the 9-11 widows? It's like, well, that's not what's happening here. But the, the, it's, it's one of the favorite tactics of Democrats to uh, like vultures, try to capitalize on loss and grief and use it as a political weapon. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. Um, I think that now we're pretty clear on what happened yesterday. Unless we want to believe that General Kelly is a liar, which I certainly don't, and I know if you're listening to this show, you don't either. And if you do, you probably should be listening to somebody else. Uh, But I'm not going to pretend like there aren't Democrats out there who still aren't clinging to the notion that Trump was in the wrong here and that Kelly's in the wrong too. You have Brian Fallon, who is a senior advisor at Priorities USA, CNN political contributor, former spokesman for Hillary Clinton. He shared the following after Kelly's speech today, after General Kelly's speech. This is what Brian Fallon never served a day in his life, just a, just a punk propagandist as far as I know. Uh, Kelly is just an enabler of Trump. He's a believer in him. That makes him as odious as the rest. Don't be distracted by the uniform. He's an enabler of Trump. This, The general just went up on TV and talked about the process of what we do to show respect to soldiers who have fallen in battle and for their families. And this is not just a general who's now the chief of staff of the White House saying it. This is a man who went through it. He buried his son. Lost in combat, lost in the defense of this nation. Fighting for the ideals that you and I hold so dear. And some little Clinton hack punk is going to call Kelly as odious as the rest? Do you think that he will be shunned by his fellow CNN political contributors? Do you think that there will be held to pay among those on the left for this? Do you think that he will uh, be held to account for this just, you want to talk about odious, this oliginous, slimy, cowardly statement? It's appalling. But this is what you would have gotten with a Democrat Hillary Clinton administration. People like this guy. This guy probably would have been White House chief of staff. Oh, yeah. With Trump, you get General Kelly. With Hillary Clinton, you would have had Brian Fallon. Oh. Yeah, that's who you want representing. That's who you want representing the country at the most senior levels of government. A guy who says, don't be distracted by the uniform. Do, do we apply this to others, by the way? I just wanted to, did Brian Fallon ever say with John Kerry, who served a, a long time ago, did he ever say that, you know, don't be distracted by the uniform? I just want to know what the standard is. Does Brian Fallon say that? And this isn't some random guy. This was Hillary Clinton's spokesman, everyone, who's now given a platform on cable news. Would he say, don't be distracted by the uniform with John McCain? Oh, no, he's not going to say that. Only a jerk would say that, right? But he says it about General Kelly because just as the left believes with its identity politics games, they can. Uh, wipe away someone's identity if they don't toe the party line, the leftist progressive orthodoxy on an issue, whether it's a racial issue, a gender issue. Now they have the temerity, now they have the brazenness to think that proximity to Trump and the Trump administration somehow makes your service to your country in the military less honorable, less important. Quote, don't be distracted by the uniform. I cannot help but stop and think that this is a mentality that is shared by many more Democrats and many more powerful Democrats who are just a little bit more savvy than to expose themselves in this way. But there has always been and will always be among leftists in this country some unease with our military and unease with military service and sometimes a lot worse than just unease it comes from the left and we know that for reasons of political power they make a big show of how much they also support the troops and, but if you're looking for narratives that undermine the troops and if you're looking for the grotesque politicization of troops lost on the field of battle you'll find them on the left time and time again much harder, not impossible, but much harder to find them on the right. So I'm glad we've cleared this up from yesterday. It doesn't mean that this issue is gone. doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that we won't have to revisit it again. But at least now I think we have clarity. And for that, we can thank General Kelly. After we thank him for his service, and after we thank him for his son's service, and say God bless him, God bless his son, and God bless the United States Marine Corps. My team, welcome back to the Freedom Hub. Let's get into Morning Joe here for a moment. Clip one, please. Play it.
3: What do you make of this sort of yearning obsession with Hillary Clinton? It's you know, it's sad, but uh, also a little frightening at this point.
1: It is. It, it, look, there's a there's a moral vacuum in the White House right now. What we're seeing
4: is that Americans elected somebody promising greatness when there was no evidence of goodness.
1: <sighs> rough stuff there. Oh, they, they were. They were hammering uh, Trump on Morning Joe because he brought up the uranium story. Uh, Play clip 12, please, sir.
2: Twenty percent of a uranium for whatever reason. And a lot of people understand what those reasons may be. I think that's your Russia story. That's your real Russia story, not a story where they talk about collusion and there was none. It was a hoax. Uh, Your real Russia story is uranium, and how they got all of that uranium, a vast percentage of what we have. That is, to me, one of the big stories of, of the decade, not just now, of the decade. The problem is that the mainstream media does not want to cover that story, because that affects people that they protect.
1: So Trump is out there saying this, and... Trump is out there saying, uh, saying this, and people are, are now getting upset with him in the media because they are, are claiming that this somehow undermines the, the duty of the press to pick out the stories. I just recall during eight years of the Obama administration, uh, I recall people being very okay with Obama weighing in on news. In fact... President Obama would weigh in on open criminal investigations, for example, on the, on the Trayvon Martin case. You know, that, that was still an, that was an ongoing issue. And you had U.S. citizens who, or a U.S. citizen in the case of, uh, of, of George Zimmerman, who was, on, who was facing charges or the possibility of charges. In fact, the Department of Justice under Eric Holder was thinking about a federal uh, criminal prosecution, Um, a federal criminal prosecution based on civil rights charges against, against George Zimmerman. And from there, they decided that they weren't going to do it, but President Obama had already weighed in on that. So I just think that this, oh, Trump is not, it's almost like Trump's not allowed to have opinions on things. And him saying that the media is not covering Russia enough, why is that not okay? Why is that a problem? Now, let me also get to uh, a story here from our friend Sarah Carter. U.S. consulting firm with ties to the Clintons lobbied on behalf of Russia's nuclear giant. So this Russia thing is not going away because more and more is being uncovered here. This is courtesy of Sarah. Let me give you some of the details. A Ru- this story, by the way, just went up while I'm on air. A Russian nuclear executive whose company was the target of an FBI investigation And who admitted to corrupt payments to influence the awarding of contracts with the Russian state owned nuclear energy corporation paid millions of dollars in consulting fees to an American firm in 2010 and 2011 to lobby the U.S. regulatory agencies and assist the Russians who were then attempting to acquire 20 percent of American uranium, according to court documents, a former FBI informant and extensive interviews with law enforcement sources. Roughly $3 million in payments from 2011 to 20, uh, 2010 to 2011 were made to APCO Worldwide Incorporated, which is described on their website as the second largest lobbying firm in the United States. The firm also provided in-kind pro bono services to Bill Clinton's foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative. Uh, services they begin 2007, according to APCO, I think that's what you'd call it, APCO officials, who spoke with Circa and press releases from the company. It was during, this is key, it was during the same time that then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was part of the Obama administration board that would eventually approve the sale of the U.S. uranium to Russia. According to the contract obtained by Circa, the total fee is comprised of the fixed quarterly fee, which shall be $750,000 per each of the four three-month periods of rendering services here under during the validity period of this contract, including the 18% Russian VAT payable in the territory of the Russian Federation. Uh, so it, it, you you go into this, and I know there's a lot of, you know, this corporation, that corporation, this name, that name, and all. There's there's a lot of stuff that is in this piece that Sarah has written and in. And I know that the Russia. Um, the russia corruption perhaps we should separate it out the democrats are always trying to prove collusion with trump and they've been completely unsuccessful because there is no collusion but the corruption issue people somebody already went to jail for this we have a source that wants to come forward that the obama doj would not let come forward and now we're starting to see that there were even more ties and yes payoffs and shady dealings With direct connections to the Clinton Foundation, corrupt and likely illegal dealings with with connections to the Clinton Foundation, all in the sector of U.S. nuclear energy, all in the sector of uranium and uranium one. So what are we to make of all of this?
0: He's holding the line for America.
1: Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. I wanted to uh, get into a little bit of a discussion about what uh, the a former president had to say today. I won't spend too much time on it. I want to do a lot of uh, national security analysis this hour because you've got some big things happening right now. So just as a preview for all of that, you have the... Uh, The fall of the Islamic State and their defeat in Raqqa, and they are on the run and in the midst of what is a rout. You also have renewed threats of mass casualty terror attacks in response to this, including the DHS and other government officials warning about increased chatter and concerns right now over all of that. And then finally, also the state of Kurdistan, the Iranian hand in Iraq right now and how it's being used as a it's it's being uh, used against the Kurds. So a lot of that coming up here in uh, this hour of the show. And then finally, uh, in the latter part of the show, third hour, we'll get into some discussion of uh, maybe the Bernie Sanders Cruz debate from last night. Cruz is like a little funnier sometimes than I than I think people give him credit for. Occasionally, Cruz says something pretty funny, you know, it's like uh I don't know. I think he's a little I I think he's his political skills at a national level are he's loosening up a little bit. Anyway, look, I was a Cruz supporter in the primary, along with many of my uh, conservative friends. And uh, I used to be chironed sometimes. They would make you do this at CNN. You had no choice. Are you a Cruz supporter? Anyway, uh, so that I'll be coming up in the third hour. But uh, for right now, you had former President George W. Bush, whom. Is a, is, a, is a good man, you know, i met him a couple of times. Um, have a lot of I have respect for him. I don't think he was a fantastic president overall. I think he was a, a, a well-intentioned guy and a good wartime a good wartime president given the threats we faced on 9/11 and afterwards. Uh, but he on the domestic front you know it was a mixed bag it was a mixed bag with George W Bush it was not it was not always great a lot of spending and uh, not good on the border and not always helpful to the cause of conservatism as we know it right? I, I look I'm, I'm just trying to be fair to it all I'm trying to give an accurate assessment of what we all saw And today he decided to give a speech and let me just play one one part of it, and this will give you a sense of much of what the the tone was.
4: The American dream of upward mobility seems out of reach for some who feel left behind in a changing economy, discontent deepened and sharpened partisan conflicts. Bigotry seems emboldened. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates into dehumanization. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples, while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Our identity as a nation, unlike many other nations, is not determined by geography or or ethnicity, by soil or blood. We become the heirs of Martin Luther King, Jr., by recognizing one another not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This means that people of every race, religion, ethnicity can be fully and equally American. It means that bigotry or white supremacy, in any form, is blasphemy against the American creed.
1: Now, when you Google George Bush speech, Under News Today, hear what all the headlines say, the first ones that come up. George W. Bush just laid a major smackdown on Trumpism, CNN, New York Times. Without saying Trump, George W. Bush delivers an implicit rebuke. Uh, Washington Post, George W. Bush's unmistakable takedown of Trumpism. I, I wonder how George W. Bush thinks it is helpful to misrepresent what Trump stands for as a political movement, what Trumpism really is, assuming that he was speaking about Trumpism, which I know there are some who say, oh, he didn't mention Trump. But we all know there's a reason why he's talking about white supremacy and bigotry right now, because this is a, a favorite topic of Democrats and the left, and they are always saying that Trump is guilty of them. And I do not believe that that is in any way a fair assessment so i don't really understand what george w bush thinks he's accomplishing with this i went over with you yesterday how one month trump is a racist the media says the next month trump is a rapist the media says the next month trump is a russia spy or stooge or whatever the media says and then the next month trump doesn't care about the military i mean you know every month trump is the worst ever the worst ever the worst ever In that environment, is having a former president really all that, is is it all that helpful right now for him to stand up and say this? How is it helpful? Uh, Look, I I think that George W. Bush is is an honorable and well-intentioned guy. I just don't know what purpose he really thinks he's, unless he really believes, and maybe he does, that Trump is a danger to the republic. From the speech today, I think you'd be able to certainly make the case that you could draw that conclusion. But that's troubling, because I think that is not only unfair, I think that's a deep misreading of what Trumpism really is and is all about. Uh, I just want to ask the press. I would want to ask George. Hey, Hey, George. Uh, gee, I, I don't think that they keep the title Mr. President even when they're done, right, because there's only one president. Hey, George, Mr. Bush, you know, why did you do that today? It just emboldens the left and the Democrat media to lie and slander and make things even more difficult for this president. So if you really wanted to help your party, and I say this for all the never Trumpers who are out there and all, w- why not try to guide Trump and the Republican Congress in the right direction? Why not encourage what is good and call out what is bad? To just say that all of it is bad is simplistic, unfair, and I would offer to you entirely unhelpful. We already know the Democrats are entirely unhelpful. We don't need to have Republicans doing the same thing. All right, let's get into a buck brief here.
0: Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared Roger that. and ready for the Buck Brief.
1: There should be much more celebration as I see it about the defeat, the defeat of the Islamic State. We should see much more media coverage of this fact than we do. Let's, before we talk about what has just happened here, which is that Raqqa, the capital of the Islamic State, or Dash, or ISIS, all different names for the same entity. Let's look back at what happened. It was but a few years ago that a terrorist army made it across the border into Iraq after seizing portions of the Syrian hinterlands, and in the midst of the Syrian civil war had been able to not just strike at Iraq, but also Stifle and almost stamp out entirely the Syrian forces of resistance against Assad that were not jihadists. But on the Iraqi side of the equation, ISIS, in a caliphate blitzkrieg, uh, rammed across the border into Mosul and was able to take a city in Iraq of 1.4 million people or so with very few shots fired. There were reports of Iraqi army soldiers at the time leaving behind their uniforms neatly folded on the ground. They were not about to stand up and fight these uh, black-clad maniacs with the black banners of jihad flying above, not just the pickup trucks that they entered Iraq with, but also over the armored vehicles that had once belonged to the Iraqi army, but that with the fall of Mosul found their way into the hands of ISIS. And so machinery paid for by you and me, my friends, weapons of war given to the Iraqi military, courtesy of Uncle Sam, were then distributed amongst the ISIS conquerors of Mosul. And they were at one point on the outskirts of The Baghdad suburbs, there were U.S. Apache helicopters that had to be deployed from Baghdad West to push back advancing ISIS forces. ISIS managed to even threaten Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan. And we were concerned at one point that we might have to have a serious deployment of large amounts of U.S. troops into Iraq to stop from stop ISIS from running roughshod over Baghdad itself. That's how bad things were. That's where this conflict really started out. And the Obama administration dithered. There should be very little question about that. Obama's first foreign policy priority in Iraq was don't be Bush. His first foreign policy priority in Syria was, was don't do anything that could look like Bush in Iraq, and oh, by the way, don't upset the Iranians who are tied to the Assad regime because you're going to need to get that nuclear deal done with Iran for your foreign policy legacy. The Syrian civil war resulted in 500,000 estimated dead and the dismemberment of that country But ISIS became a priority for us because it was an external threat as well. ISIS fighters had infiltrated into Europe and in the last three years engaged in a number of mass casualty attacks. On top of that, the notion of an Islamic state that was run by jihadists who were claiming that it would be the site of a great battle for the end of days— that in fact ISIS ideology was that the end of the world would come in Syria with a fight in the midst of Syria and Dabik is the name of the area and they thought thought would be the battlefield for this, uh, that they then were able to push this ideology around the world resulted in tens of thousands flocking to the Islamic State's banner and the prospect of other countries suffering the same fate as Iraq and Syria. Affiliate groups to the Islamic State were popping up all over the world. And there were uh, jihadists who were even self-radicalizing here in America and then engaging in attacks on behalf of the Islamic State. So this was a true menace with worldwide impact and global domination ambitions, as megalomaniacal as that may be. And we did not have for years under the Obama administration an effective policy to deal with them. At the very end of Obama's time in office, perhaps because he knew he'd be handing it off to another commander in chief, some of the right decisions on dealing with ISIS were made and some of the, the right structures were put in place for defeating ISIS. With the Trump administration, you had an acceleration of the air campaign and a willingness To take the fight much faster and harder to ISIS from the air and on the ground than ever before under Obama. And that is all the necessary backstory for us to now say that ISIS has been defeated. This is important. This is noteworthy. This should not just get swept into the rest of the news cycle on other unrelated items to national security as though this is just something that happened in the Middle East. This is major. I believe the administration should give a speech specifically uh complimenting and lauding and congratulating and uh and giving as uh, giving high fives to all of our Muslim allies in this fight against the Islamic state. There is a tremendous opportunity here to tell a story about how America stood beside those who were willing to stand up and fight for themselves against jihadist tyranny, most notably the Kurds, who we'll be talking about later on in this hour. But there were others, too. There were Jordanians, and many of you will certainly remember that horrific video of a captured Jordanian pilot who was helping us take the fight to the Islamic State, and the Islamic State executed him brutally on video for it. There were Gulf states that were assisting us, the Saudis and the UAE and others that were part of our coalition to take the fight to ISIS. And this is a major victory. It's also the implementation of a strategy that we are going to want to replicate elsewhere around the world. We want to give our Muslim allies the tools and the support to fight themselves against jihadism And that is the model that I think has been established both in Iraq and in Syria. But it is it is a time for uh, solemn uh, remembrance because of all of the evil that was done by the Islamic State. We should not forget what it means for an area to fall into the clutches of jihadism. We should not forget what it means when uh, there are Islamic radicals who are not just Uh, fighting on the battlefield but also maintaining a government a government that in the case of ISIS in Raqqa and the other areas under its control were torturing, beheading mutilating, cutting off hands for minor offenses, cutting off ears, uh, raping women as a form of punishment for their families or just because the savages, the barbarians of ISIS felt like that was what they were going to do we've blown a lot of them away off the battlefield, and that is a good thing. There are many others who will melt into the civilian population now. They are cowards, and they always have been. Now we see them for what they are, but we should also take stock and take a moment to thank our military that had provided the necessary cover, and I'm sure done a whole lot that we're not even publicly aware of to eliminate the ISIS menace. Uh, There's so much that the military is doing all the time, and there's so much that's being done by everybody who works in national security in our government uh, in this area of the world to try and defeat these enemies. But our military, our airmen, our special forces were essential in this process and did a a heck of a thing by eliminating this caliphate and wiping it off the face of the earth. And we also have Muslim friends and allies who fought bravely here and did their best under the circumstances, sometimes very difficult circumstances, to uh, stand up to an enemy that would give no quarter, that would not abide by any of the rules or norms of war, and that had fully embraced evil. We have, in Iraq and Syria, defeated a massive death cult. That's what ISIS is. And I would like to see the president or one of his top national security people, General Mattis or perhaps General Kelly, just remind all Americans of what our armed forces have accomplished over there and also to thank our allies for standing with us and dropping the hammer on those evil, thuggish disgraces to humanity known as the Islamic State. They have been defeated. And it's a darn good thing, too. Um, There are also threats, however. There are very real concerns about what the response will be. And make no mistake, ISIS still controls Hawija in Iraq and some of the surrounding areas. It still has a stronghold in Deir Ezzor. ISIS is not eradicated entirely. It has just ceased to exist as a state. Now it's an idea, uh, much more so. It's also an insurgency, though, and a terrorist group and one with tentacles that stretch all over the world. So coming up here in just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about what the response could be to the defeat of ISIS, the loss of Raqqa. How will this group try and regroup? How will it try and regain relevance in jihadist circles, both in the Middle East and around the world? We will get into all that and uh, much more coming up, as, as well as a discussion about the latest with the Kurds and Kirkuk. It's an important national security issue, not getting enough attention in the press. And those of you who are listening who are current or former military know that we've got a lot of, of uh, a lot of ties to the Kurds, and a lot of you feel very strongly, as I know I do. <laughs> He's holding the line for America. Buck
0: Sexton is back.
1: Groups working for another 9-11 acting DHS chief warns this courtesy of uh, Fox News threat levels in the U.S. are extremely high as intelligence indicates the Islamic State group and other terror groups are using small-scale plots to build toward another 9-11-style attack, Acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary Elaine Duke warned. Quote, the terrorist organizations, be it ISIS or others, want to have the big explosion like they did on 9-11, Duke said, speaking at the U.S. Embassy in London. Uh, They want to take down aircraft. The intelligence is clear on that. Their ultimate goal is creating terror and a van attack in London, as well as sporadic knife attacks accomplish just that, while never giving up on a major aviation plot. Look, I should note, this this is by no means new, and whether we're talking about Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or any jihadist entity that views itself as part of the global jihad and is not predominantly focused on a local Islamist struggle, although they all believe they're part of one ummah, one Islamic community, so it's just a question of degrees. It's not really like any organization can be devoted to there's no such thing as just a local jihad in the uh, in the true context of the term. But uh, the difference now is that with the fall of the Islamic state from being a state, there is going to be an increased uh, desire among the affiliate groups all across uh, the world to strike against the U.S. and its interests, there will be an, an increase, I believe, not just in chatter, but in low-scale efforts—the kind of low-tech, uh, low-skill, if you will, uh, terrorism that we have seen so many times over the last few years. This is the vehicle attack that we've seen. This is the knife attack, the uh, the shooting, uh, bombings, but. Generally, from individuals who have tenuous or no actual ties to the Islamic State, which is the big differentiator here. Now, we may see some of those groups, whether it's Boko Haram in Nigeria, uh, the Islamic State of the Sinai, the Islamic State in Afghanistan, we may see them try and engage in outside plotting against. The United States or Europe, Uh, they will certainly be going after us on foreign soil. But I think that there may be, for strategic propaganda reasons, there may be a push now. I, I, I I would assume, and this is why I think the DHS acting secretary said what she did publicly, I would assume that the leadership of the Islamic State sees the state of play as follows. Uh, We have lost so much territory in Iraq and Syria. The Islamic State is no more, but the Islamic Jihad is an idea that must be sustained. And the best way for them to do that is to either themselves activate a cell in Europe or to reach out to one of their affiliate organizations and say, what resources can you bring to bear for a mass casualty attack? One of the reasons that jihadist plots have been either thwarted or just fizzled, failed in so many instances to create any casualties or only limited casualties is because most jihadists who believe that they are doing this as part of a cosmic theological struggle for not just global domination but for eternal glory— They want to go out in a blaze of glory. They want to engage in a massive explosion attack. They want to uh, kill hundreds if not thousands of people. And in aiming for such widespread carnage, they often go beyond what their planning and skills allow. A perfect example of this would be Faisal Shahzad in the Times Square bombing in 2010. If he had just driven his car into Times Square, he would have no doubt killed people by mowing them down, but he wanted to build a massive car bomb, though he did not have the skill set to do it. There are plenty of other instances just like this of terror plots that were not even foiled, but just fizzled because the individual or individuals engaged in them were not trained by any real... Uh, terror tradecraft entity, right? They didn't get the skills for a mass casualty attack. But a 9-11 style attack by any of these affiliate groups would automatically kickstart the jihad once again, and it would take the focus, the propaganda focus, off the loss of the Islamic State and would all of a sudden uh, draw perhaps even more recruits to the banner all over the world the banner of jihad and it would make it seem as though no matter what the united states and its allies are able to accomplish in this fight there will always be the prospect of yet another attack There will always be looming over us like some evil specter the threat of yet more jihadist violence so that's why despite what should, what is a cause for celebration, which is the fall of the Islamic State, uh, there are these reports right now and concerns about elevated threat against us, and it's something that we should take very seriously because messaging is at the heart of the Islamic State venture. It has been, in many ways, as much a propaganda campaign as it is a state building enterprise these groups have always engaged in terror and mass murder and and uh, enslaved people and uh, engaged in mass rape that is a defining characteristic of jihadist terrorist entities but it is the state building that was different about the islamic state and the creation of a perception that they were building a country if you will that was ruled by jihadists They're not getting that country anymore, but they still want to keep that idea alive. Team, I've been talking to you about the problems posed by uh, leaving our Kurdish allies high and dry in Iraq to fend for themselves. We see now that it's even worse than just an issue of dealing with the central government in Baghdad. This also brings into the conversation Iran, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. There have been reports now for a couple of days that the commander of the Quds Force, which is an elite uh, part of the IRGC, the commander is Qasem Soleimani, that he was involved in the operation to take Kirkuk from the Kurdish Peshmerga. Now, just by way of background here, Kirkuk is a city in northern Iraq that is right on the edge of Kurdish controlled territory. It is a mixed city in terms of uh, ethnicity, and it is about a million, a million people in change in terms of total inhabitants. It's a major city. And the Peshmerga, the Kurdish Peshmerga, had taken the city, taken control of it because of the ISIS invasion of Iraq, and they had taken it back, uh, and they had taken it in control of it after ISIS. And the reality here is that Kirkuk is very important to the Kurds. They call it their Jerusalem. But that you have an Iranian commander, Qasem Soleimani, taking control of Shia militias, which they call the Popular Mobilization Forces, and allowing this Iranian uh, cat's paw to be used against our friends the Kurds in Iraq, this is... Terrible long term strategic decision making. I understand in the short term, it looks like the administration, looks like President Trump and his top national security advisors don't want to add another problem onto their plate. I get that. Makes sense under the circumstances. But here's the problem with that. The long-term benefits of an independent Kurdistan for U.S. policy in the Mideast, I think, greatly outweigh the short-term risks posed by a political transition, not a military transition. Nobody wants the Iraqi government and the Kurds to be shooting it out in the streets of Kirkuk or anywhere else for that matter. But a political transition into an independent state would give us a stalwart, dependable Muslim ally in the Middle East that I'm sure would be happy to have some U.S. bases there in the future. Lots of U.S. direct investment is right next door to Iran. And oh, by the way, also has a ties to the Kurdish minority in Iran. People often forget this, but Iran holds itself up as this uh, Shia Persian state and that it's been essentially this uh, Persian kingdom for thousands of years. But the truth is that Iran has many different ethnicities. Uh, It is a good percentage Kurdish. Overall, you're talking about a few million Kurds in Iran. Now, Iran has a population of 70 million, but you might have as many as five or six million Kurds in Iran. So if we want to be able to exert pressure long term on the Iranians, Creating a an independent, stable Kurdish state that maybe even has some U.S. bases right on their doorstep makes a whole lot of sense to me. And in terms of the short, the shorter term risks that we face, the Turks, I think, are a lot of bluster on this issue of what they would do about an Iraqi Kurdistan. A a Turkish Kurdistan is never going to be acceptable to them. And I understand that. But the Turks, in fact, get oil from the Kurdish area. The pipeline that goes from the oil fields around Kirkuk, which if we want to understand why the Iraqi government gets so tense about a Kurdish, uh, a Kurdish region that would be a breakaway province that would secede. It's in part because of oil revenues. It's also because central governments tend to have a problem with any part of the country just breaking away from them. Uh, But the pipeline for the oil around Kirkuk in those fields, including the oldest field, the oldest oil field in Iraq, where oil was discovered first, I mean, uh, is outside of Kirkuk. But that pipeline goes up into Turkey. The uh, overwhelming majority of the oil in Iraq actually goes through Basra, a Shia-majority city to the south on the... Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, depending on who you ask, and it goes out there to ships. And that's where most of the oil, most of the oil in Iraq is in the south and goes through Basra. But the oil pipeline that goes up into Turkey has been safe and secure for a long time and a source of crude for the Turkish government. The Turks have also put a lot of direct investment into Kurdistan. They don't want to smash the Kurds, but because of their current government, which is a jingoistic and increasingly Islamist uh, Erdogan regime, Uh, we we are concerned about what they might do in response to an Iraqi Kurdistan. I think we could get them to calm down on this if we tried. But it would be adding to the possible problems right now that the administration has to deal with. And I understand that there is a hesitation on their part to uh, take this on. But that brings me back to what I keep calling the debt of honor we have to the Kurdish people. There's the old saying that the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. And it's quite true, unfortunately, historically. And when, as I've told you before, you look at mountainous peoples from Scotland to Kurdistan to Afghanistan to Appalachia in our own country... People that have the ability to go up into the mountains and separate themselves from central power tend to be a rebellious and independent lot. And the Kurds certainly fall into that category. They have been treated terribly by Saddam. They have been treated terribly by uh, the various regimes in which there is a large Kurdish population the Turks, the Iranians, the Syrians, and the Iraqis. And ever since world war one ended there has been this kurdish question and i think it's time that we settle it there is no greater uh, message that i think we could send about our allies right now in the middle of the muslim world than to look at a muslim people which is what the the kurds are muslim they're just ethnically non-arab To look at them and say you fought with us you bled with us and because of your actions fewer Americans uh, lost limbs fewer Americans died in combat in Iraq which I think is indisputably true especially when you add in the fight against the Islamic State that's where I think we have this debt of honor to the Kurdish people Uh, they helped save and preserve American lives and nothing in our fight against Islamic extremism, uh, can be more important to us than that. They were saving Americans and protecting Americans, and they were our most important ally against the Islamic State. And to see them chased out of Kirkuk by the IRGC and the head of the IRGC, Qasem Soleimani, is, keep in mind, to watch... At the other end of the spectrum, a group that has the blood of Americans on its hands going up against and chasing away our allies because the government in Baghdad, which is officially allied with us, but has all kinds of problems when it comes to dealing with Iran, is too cowardly or incapable of standing up against the mullahs in Tehran and saying no to the IRGC. Iraq is in danger of becoming a, a an Iranian puppet regime if it's not there already, and some would argue that it is. The Kurds have been our friends. The Kurds have kept Americans safe. Ask any veteran who worked with the Kurds, and I tell you, nine times out of ten, and maybe even more than that, they'll say they were honorable people. They fought with us, they bled with us, and they showed that the problem in the Middle East is not a function of Islam can't be a stable society. The problems in the Middle East come from those who are extremists, from those who won't deal with modernity. The Kurds are Muslims who embrace modernity. The Kurds are Muslims who want to work with and be friends with and allied with the West. They want better schools for their children. They want security for their people. And they are able to successfully suppress that jihadist instinct from within Islam that has devastated so many other countries in the region and been the cause of more of the instability we have seen in the world over the last 30 or so years than any other factor. Jihadism is a cancer on the world and the Kurds have been doing their level best to help us excise it, at least from within their own Society and from within Iraq. And they've done a darn good job of it. And it just honestly breaks my heart to see them chased away by scum like Qasem Soleimani, his IRGC thugs, and the Iranian kleptocrat jerks in Tehran getting their way in, the, uh, in Iraq. It's just, uh, it's, it's a gut punch. And it shouldn't be the way that it is. Uh, The administration needs to pay more attention to this one. I know that they've got a lot. Their hands are full with other issues right now, but we owe the Kurds. We simply do. And it's time that we take that obligation as seriously as they had been taking their obligations to fight with us, to protect our people, and to be our ally. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So there's a Spencer rally, Richard Spencer, giving a speech. I'm not even sure it's a rally, really, because I don't know if anyone's going to show up to this thing. Uh, I hope no one shows up to this. It's at the University of Florida, and you've got this guy in the alt-right who gets so much attention from the media because they they like the alt-right as a a boogeyman that they can make appear whenever they want. Oh, the alt-right, the white nationalists are... The white nationalists are jerks and losers, and nobody really cares what they have to say. Anybody with an IQ over 70 who is a reasonable, moral, ethical person thinks that the alt-right are a bunch of complete and utter imbeciles. And so why do they get so much media coverage? There's a part of me that doesn't even want to talk about this story because I have to talk about the alt-right. You know, this is... One of those catch twenty twos. I can try to ignore it, but then I'm ignoring the alt right. Why aren't you talking about them? Or I talk about them, and I'm giving them more attention. Right? So there's there's no there's no simple way to a straightforward way to handle this. But I, w- I would just say the following: uh, the alt right is about as popular as I've said before. The Westboro Baptist Church, and everybody who's anybody of any sense. Hates the Westboro Baptist Church. And uh, this is just clownish stupidity. What's kind of incredible, though, is how expensive these uh, spent the Spencer speech will be. Uh, It's going to cost in security a half a million dollars. Now, let me say that uh, for, for once, the, the leftists out there, the uh, the progressive student unions and Democrats for, uh, you know, college Democrats and I'm sure I'm college Republicans, too, who are all saying this guy is uh, scum and everything that he's saying and everything that he stands for is is a disgrace. I, I agree with them. But I also don't think that there should have to be a half a million dollars of security here. There should just be tumbleweeds blowing through this guy's speech there should be, he he should be the equivalent, and my understanding is that the University of Florida can't because the state school can't uh prevent him from going He's invited himself he's not even an invited guest. I guess he's rented out a hall at the University of Florida, which they allow people to do that or i'm I'm a guessing that's the case i don't know how else he could I know he wasn't invited uh and the president of the school has the president of the university has said that this is uh this guy is terrible i mean this this is easy right i mean everyone knows this guy is terrible um but it, it shouldn't cost a half a million dollars to prepare for this thing because it really shouldn't cost much of anything because nobody should care and what what you see happening here is that spencer feeds off of and those who support him feed off of the Progressive snowflakeism that's out there that you know you have to show up and shout this guy down that that's proving how brave you are look for once they're right, you know it's one thing when they show up at like a Ben Shapiro or Charles Murray speech because then not only are they acting like children but they're also morons, right but here, yeah, okay, I agree with them. Spencer's an idiot, but you don't you don't have to show up and make a big noise about how this guy's message is so bad because he doesn't have any substantial following. He does not have a voice, but they have been conditioned, the left and a lot of millennials and young people, they have been conditioned to think that the president is tied in with the alt-right and there's this creeping fascism in America and we all have to be on guard for what's going to happen if, if we don't, do this if we don't become anti-fa, anti-fascist, all this stuff. It's just all exaggerated, hyperbolic nonsense. There have always been white supremacists and white nationalist uh, idiots running around. The FBI just released a report on violent African-American extremism, I should note. You know, I mean, there are... Radical, evil people from all different ends of the political spectrum and belief spectrum. And the issue is, do they have enough support that it matters? Are their ideas being accepted in society or not? And if the answer is no, everyone thinks they're 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 idiotic and no, they don't have any support. Why waste so much time and effort opposing them? You just bring more attention to the cause. So with Spencer, I just think we have one of these instances where. The notion that we should have to uh, have people showing up and that there needs to be a half a million dollars of security. Why? Because someone's going to riot at a Richard Spencer rally? Just don't even show up. Let the guy speak to an empty hall. That's the biggest repudiation of this ideology that there could be. Just don't show up. Don't be there. Because with the Internet, it's not like you can shut down his speech entirely anyway. I just think this is a lot of posturing from these college kids. I agree with them on this, on this case that they're posturing in the right way or, or, or at the right time. The guy's an idiot. Spencer's the worst. But it shouldn't need 500K to settle everything down. All right, team, we've got some lines lit. Let's take a call from Mark in California who's listening on the iHeart app. Hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for your call.
0: So um, I listen to you a lot. Uh, I'm a Navy vet. I uh, live out here in California. I have to deal with all the California things. But uh, it's not my question or point today. Um, I was listening about the Kurds earlier, and you seem really be passionate about um, that we need to help them. And I'm all for helping countries militarily-wise. But as far as your reasoning behind it, um, that that uh, uh, We fought side by side and they saved a lot of American lives. Um, But weren't they defending their own lands and we were there helping them at that point?
1: Sure. But but if you look at the if you look at the period of the Iraq insurgency from, say, 2004 to 2009, uh, we could not count on very many Sunni Arab or Shia Arab military units in Iraq. To uh, to be trustworthy on the ground, I mean that was a constant problem. You had desertion rates, uh, you had or you had desertion problems. You had uh, enormous enormous attrition of many of the units that we trained. The Kurds would stay and fight. And to your point about defending their own land, the Kurds, in fact, would go well outside of their territory to help us. Uh, the Kurds were deployed well beyond the borders of what is now Kurdistan in order to try to help stabilize uh, Iraq, and were very effective. Oh, yeah. part- Go ahead. You
0: have to fight. You have to fight outside your boundaries to secure your own. Um, if You just live in your little hole. You're never going to be able to defend yourself. Um, but I, I think that a, a more effective way to 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 try to get this I, Iranian um, supported force out of uh, yeah, the, the
1: IRGC and all the Shia militias yeah. that are operating under their command. Yeah,
0: right. It would be to put heavy economic pressure on Iran so they couldn't afford to go
1: into places like this. Well that was the idea and, before and then Obama decided that we were gonna lift the heavy a heavy, heavy economic pressure, right? And and that's been happening.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, but you can't can't undo eight years of badness. You kinda have to push forward and I just don't want to see us getting into another battle. Uh you know, somewhere else.
1: Well uh, I, I hope that I that as I've been working through this on airmark I've been I've been clear about how I, I, I am not advocating that, you know, we we land a marine expeditionary force in in northern Iraq and say, all right, we're going you know, we're marching on Baghdad with the Kurds or anything like that. Right. I mean, that would be crazy. Uh, but there are ways that we can influence Baghdad to one know that we expect that they don't, uh, you know, go deep into Kurdistan and try to punish them for the referendum or teach them some kind of a lesson militarily. And two, I think we need to start, and maybe the conversation is underway, Mark, but having a conversation with Baghdad about, look, Kurdistan is is essentially already a reality, right? That's what it's important to keep in mind. They have their own military. They have their own currency. They have their own language. They, you know, in, in what way are they meaningfully a part of Iraq? And when you ask the government in Baghdad that, I think they would just get very huffy and, and indignant, but I don't think they'd have a good answer. Well, the-
0: let me ask you a question because I don't know a lot about Kurdistan. Is, is it possible to uh, do heavy investment economically into Kurdistan?
1: Oh, absolutely. The, the, the Turks have invested have invested uh, serious cash in Kurdistan for for a long time now. I mean, Kurdistan. For those of you who've ever been there, it, it kind of. I mean, don't tell the Turks this. It kind of feels like Turkey. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it. You'll be like, oh, the right. food. The food is kind of like Turkish food. You know.
0: Yeah, I know. My daughter was just stationed at Interlock for two two years.
1: Oh yeah, so uh, uh, look, Tur- hey, there. Turkish food is great. By the way, side note, but
0: yeah. um, actually, it is good. Doner Donor- doner <laughs> kebab
1: gets the job done every yeah. time.
0: And if you're going to Germany, it's on every corner. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, I-, I guess I didn't understand your approach. If your approach is more on an economic one, I'd be all for
1: that. Yeah, it's economic and political. Um, I'm, I, yeah. never, look, I I would never. You look. I don't. I'm so happy about what's going on in Iraq and Syria because it shows that by picking a reliable ally with a ground force that is 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 reasonable and is is willing to fight against the bad guys, we can get a lot of stuff done, right? We, we don't have to be sending guys uh, like you from California, Alabama, Virginia, you know, Massachusetts, you name it. Uh, we don't have to be sending ours to go do the fighting for them, but there are ways that we can help. In the case of Kurdistan, yeah. there are, I think, are levers that we can pull that would uh, push for a political solution to what's going on with this Kurdish independence movement, and and get Baghdad to start to see it our way. Look, there are also inducements, right? I'm sure there are some things that Baghdad would like from us that maybe we could make happen if they're uh, amenable to the idea of a Kurdish region. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Mark, with that, I will thank you for your service and thank you for your call. Yep. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, you know, one more thing. Uh, uh, o- Ocalan, who is the and this I didn't get to talk about this before, and, and maybe this is too in the weeds, but I don't know. I'm I'm guessing I'm maybe one of like three radio hosts in the country right now who knows who Ocalan is without having to to Google it and do like a on the spot research. So he is the founder of the PKK, which is a Kurdish uh, terrorist liberation movement. In Turkey and started in the 80s and responsible for tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, Ocalan was captured and was sentenced to death initially. But then because the Turks wanted uh, entry into NATO, uh, they got rid of uh, or maybe it was in their bid for the EU. I forget now, which obviously didn't happen. Uh, But they got rid. They they dropped the death penalty and and Ocalan is uh, is in prison. But he's been advocating for a political settlement to the Kurdish issue from prison notably uh, for quite some time now. And uh, that's for Turkey. Right. So there are ways to approach this, I think, from a political perspective, that would be uh, that would be effective. And uh, the PKK, this should also be noted, It is a big banner right now. You know, the Syrian Democratic forces. I saw this all over social media on some of the national security accounts that I follow. Uh, it's not getting much attention because most people have no idea who Ocalan is. But you listen to this show, so now you know. Founder of the PKK, a Kurdish terrorist group in Turkey that wants to create a Kurdistan in Turkey. Uh, but and, and has done some very and it was a very did some very bad things. Uh, killing civilians, ter- terrorist group, right? PKK, Kurdistan Workers Party. Uh, but Ocalan's portrait has been popping up in the middle of Raqqa. Because there's connectivity between the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, who we've been using as our ground force, not entirely Kurdish. There are also the Syrian Arabs who are part of that Syrian Democratic Forces coalition. But you have a lot of Kurds, and they like uh, they, they like Ocalan, who's now pushing for a political settlement. But in Turkey, this is very sensitive because he's, he's considered a terrorist. He's engaging in terrorist activities, you know, blowing up civilian areas, attacking military targets inside Turkey. Yeah, so that's a little additional backstory. But yeah, Ocalan's photo is popping up on huge banners in the middle of Raqqa right now. You can imagine what the Turks think of that. To us, well, to Americans, everyone's like, "Who's this Ocalan dude?" Right? I mean, ninety-nine point nine percent of people don't have to know and don't know. Who cares? To the Turks, it is a it's a big deal. Uh, They they do not like seeing that. And unless though, I mean, I I have no reason to believe those photos were doctored, but I've seen them shared pretty widely on social media of the uh, SDF putting up photos of Ocalan. So anyway, um, with that in mind, I wanted to talk about, and this is probably going to drag you to the next segment too. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz throwdown that happened last night on CNN. Some very interesting moments. The most interesting of all though, Bernie Sanders. Hey Bernie, he's back. He's talking about socialism, you know, stuff. Give me your stuff, I'll give it to other people. It'll be better for you. Uh, Bertie's out there with Cruz and Cruz, who is a skilled debater uh, got him at one point to finally answer a question that I think many of us have been wondering about for some time what exactly is the difference between a, a socialist and a democrat and here is what the burn had to say in response
4: let me just ask since this is a tax debate what is the difference between a socialist and a Democrat on taxes? Well, I don't know the answer to that, I, don't I, don't know.
0: And I don't Democrats know. Uh, But who here's knows? what I think. I don't know. Do you As know? a Democratic socialist that similar to the people in Denmark and Sweden and Norway and Finland,
1: Norway, people who have, by large, a much higher standard of living than we have. Much higher standard of living than we have. Much better. Uh, a few things. First of all, uh, those are not truly socialist countries. <laughs> so start with that. They're really just countries that have a large welfare state and high taxes. But you, in fact, have some greater economic freedom in some of those countries for businesses and corporations than you even do in America, which Bernie Sanders does not know. He has no idea. If you ask him, he'd be like, what are you talking about? They're socialists. Uh, no, they believe in a large, uh, a large, large state services, uh, lots of entitlement programs. And like our own entitlement program, you pay into it in the form of taxes. They just have much higher taxes. So then one wants to pose the question of, okay, so what is the difference then between what Bernie Sanders wants and what they want in Denmark? The answer is nothing, which means that, yeah, he's going to have to raise your taxes a whole lot. Uh, He's going to have to make the tax. I mean, the tax rate. You know, we're sitting around here talking about, oh, the top marginal rate might be 30, might be 29, might be 39. You know, we're in that neighborhood. If you want Denmark's welfare state, if you want the the free school and keep in mind, Denmark's a much smaller country and doesn't have a 20 trillion dollar debt already. I should note that it's dealing with. But if you want all that, you're talking about an income tax rate in the neighborhood of more like a 60 70 percent and when you get to a certain rate i think it's even higher than that you know without all the loopholes i mean that's actually what you're paying in taxes and bernie pretty much had to admit that if we can explain to people yeah
0: you're going to be paying more in taxes it's going to be a progressive tax system the wealthy are going to pay their fair share, not the middle class, not the working class, but everybody will pay some more. But you're going to get free health care and maybe you're going to get free child care and maybe your kids are going to be able to go to college tuition free. You know what? You're going to be better off than under Texas. Center.
1: See, this is the big this is the, the big and unavoidable lie. When you get somebody like Bernie Sanders out there who's talking about how we want to be like Sweden, we want to be like Norway. And I should note that given some of their recent issues with immigration and their welfare states, there, there are concerns about whether they're even able to continue as they have been. But here's what Bernie Sanders really doesn't want to tell you. Here's what Bernie Sanders really doesn't want to get into. To give you the welfare state in this country, for all of you listening across the country, if you want Swedish uh, government services. If you want Denmark's government services, never can't take Norway in there. Norway's got a tremendous amount of oil reserves and a very small population. You know, so that's a different different issue. But if you want, let's say, the Swedish model for America, the middle class in Sweden pays incredibly high taxes. Everybody who is an earner pays very, very high taxes. So those of you who are sitting and listening to the show, you're like, yeah, Sweden for America. That sounds pretty good. Okay, if you're making forty or fifty grand a year. You're going to be paying 50 or 60 percent of your income. You're going to be paying all in when you add in all the different taxes they have in a place like Sweden. You're going to be paying a big chunk of your income to the government. I mean, and do you trust the government to do a good job with your money? I certainly don't think so. I mean, look at the government services we already have in this country and the debt we've run up with them. So not only can we not have Sweden services because we don't have the taxes Sweden has, we don't have the bureaucrats that Sweden has either.
0: He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops.
1: Jessica in Denver, iHeart app listener. Hey, Jessica, what's up? I'm Jessica, good. hey, how you doing?
3: I'm doing great. So, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. You tried very hard uh, a week or so ago to really make the case about why Catalonia's separation from Spain was important. And well, it's important
1: because of the precedent Spain. it sets, yeah.
3: Right. And I think that because, well, exactly. Um, I think that it is important, and it's important now, too, in view of the Kurdish uh, situation, and I kind of wanted to contrast those two um, separatist movements. By all means. So I lived in, I lived in Spain for 25 years and um, and super familiar with the Catalans and their and their gripes, um this is something that 's left over since the Spanish Civil War in Catalonia, There was a huge anarchist movement um and I 'd love Buck if you 'd talk to us about what the heck an anarchist is someday okay. Because honestly it 's kind of hard to understand, even I mean even me and I even anarchists don 't really
1: Spanish know what anarchists course. are, to be honest with you i 've read Mikhail Bakunin. Uh, and, and Bakunin is somebody who's really kind of a, a heretic from socialism and collectivism, uh, but had some very interesting things to say about the failures of them. But he was, he was an anarchist. Bakunin was an anarchist, a Russian anarchist. Anyway, go ahead. Well, maybe we'll talk about that another day. On God and, yeah, the, on the, God and the state.
3: Yeah. Okay, so the thing is, Catalonia has been a part of Spain for 500 years. OK, since Isabel and Ferdinand joined together and made Spain one country and Catalonia has its language, but its language is really similar to Spanish. I mean, really, I speak Spanish. I understand Catalan. And um, so their you know, argument is they have a different language. They've always been um, one of the most wealthy areas. Their gripes right now have to do with um With uh, taxes and taxation, and they don't want to pay, you know, they want to be socialist, but they don't want to pay for other regions in Spain. And this is kind of what's been fomenting along with a real sense of, you know, their language, their culture, their whatever. It's kind of foo-foo. I don't think the Kurds, that that is the issue with the Kurds at all. I think the Kurds are the real deal, you know, whereas Catalonia are kind of like a spoiled brat having a hissy fit. Um, yeah, well, well this 18. is like
1: I think it's important, and, and you're bringing this up. So to contrast the situations, the Cat- the Catalans are in a stable, prosperous. You know, I know it's got its economic problems, but uh, but Spain's been for quite a while now a nice place to live. I mean, you lived there for 25 years, right? It's beautiful. It's, it's safe. Awesome. You know, it, I'm sorry.
3: It's
1: awesome. It's great food.
3: It's beautiful, yeah. It's a great Spain.
1: Spain's, place. Spain's a, g- a great place. I mean, the Kurds have spent the last 30 or 40 years trying not to be eradicated by uh, extremists, crazies, dictators, and they've been a good friend to us the whole way. You know, you can imagine why you think of it almost like the uh, the the Catalans and the Kurds are both requesting a divorce, so to speak. Uh, You know, the Catalans want a divorce because they want they know they think there's something better out there and they want to go on some dates. The Kurds want a divorce because they're in a really dangerous and terrible situation they need to get out of.
3: Exactly. You're 100 percent right on. And the European common market has said to Catalonia, you won't you know, we will not take you in. And of course they can't because it has to be right. A unanimous vote. And Spain will never let let Catalonia go in, you know, um, become a part of the European common market. The place is closed down. The Supreme Court said of Spain, that this vote was illegal, which is why the only people who showed out on this latest vote on the 11 who showed up for the latest vote on the uh, October 1st were, of course, the radicals, because the normal people didn't show up. They showed up on October 8th and filled the streets of Barcelona and said, no, are you kidding? We don't want to be separate. Moreover, there was an election about two, uh, three, four months ago where they voted whether to vote in Catalonia, and the people said no so there is like no comparison between what the Kurds have gone through as you say Buck and what Cat- and Catalunya's little hissy fit there's All just right. no no comparison
1: best city to visit if you're going for the first time to Spain which I've never been so best city to visit is
3: oh my goodness oh so many oh so difficult Granada Granada,
1: Granada is
3: my husband's okay. home oh, wow. Granada okay Granada is awesome. I will put
1: that top I'll oh, tell oh Miss Molly that's top of the list now Thank you so much, Jessica, for calling it uh for calling it from Denver at Denver Shields High. So um, so many wonderful callers on the Bucks Action Show. The uh the rule is wonderful callers, the exception occasionally we get somebody who's not so not, not good. But uh we've had some in this hour some great callers. Um let's take a moment to uh talk about snowflakeism, shall we? And trigger warnings. I haven't talked to you about college campus stuff all that much lately until i know we we just discussed the spencer richard spencer speech and i already feel like i've given that too much airtime. time but you've had a couple of news reports in the last week or so about how you just can't expose kids these days to great literature and i don't mean kind of sort of maybe great literature. i mean the greatest literature you have cambridge university students now Cambridge is one of the oldest and most storied. Oh, hello, Cambridge. So fancy. They even think they're fancier than the American Ivy League. Ivy League is kind of the nouveau riche of the university world. Uh, But Cambridge students are now being treated to trigger warnings for Shakespeare plays. Can't just be expected to handle the greatest playwright of the English language and one of the greatest playwrights of all civilizations of any time Uh, can't be expected to just read it. And, you know, I mean, no one's saying you're you're having, you know, 10 year olds sit there and, and start making their way through Hamlet or Titus Andronicus or something. But, you know, once you're in high school, college, you'd think you could read some Shakespeare and it'd be all right. You should know what's going on. I'm sure there's far too little Shakespeare reading going on in here Uh, Shakespeare is not taught nearly enough in school anymore and there's such a focus on, oh, there's too many male authors, too many Western authors, too many uh, Eurocentric authors, whatever. And all these really kind of mediocre to subpar academics just go along with these fads at the expense of the true greats, Shakespeare and others. So they get trigger warnings for Shakespeare plays, uh, which is deeply i mean it's worthy of mockery but it's also it's just it is sad and this is this is now a part of not just american culture but it's certainly part of european canadian culture uh that that people can't just read great literature they have to be concerned about what that literature may or may not do to the psyche of the reader and if you think this is I know you're talking Cambridge. Oh, hello, Cambridge. Hello, Cambridge. Yes, two time. Uh, you've also got this here in America as you already. knew. That. There's all kinds of books now. Uh, what uh, Tom Sawyer has has been pulled from some uh, from book. I, I I could sit here and do a whole show on just all the different books that we're no longer able to talk about or have because, you know, have in schools because they might offend somebody. You can't do Peter Pan anymore because of all the stuff with the Native Americans in Peter Pan. You can't have Peter Pan plays. Uh, but the latest here to add to our list of uh, trigger warnings and snowflakeism is that there is a concern. This is reported in the LA Times, among other places. A school district is so concerned about to kill a mockingbird that it has pulled it from shelves because it makes people. Uncomfortable.
4: Uh,
1: artwork, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I remember being in some very, uh, what's, some, some pretty pretentious, I won't lie, some pretty pretentious college classes on English literature and art and art history. I, I, I took a few of them in my day. I'm not going to lie, I'm keeping it real. And I remember that one of the professors saying, How do you define art? And it was fascinating to see all these college kids go around, some of us shaking off our hangovers from the night before. Uh, trying to and others, not just drinking stuff. There was other stuff going on there too. But you know, family show. So we'll talk about those substances maybe another time. Hey man, like, I mean art history class, and we've got like, do we do do we do drums in like a circle in art history class? The answer was sometimes, by the way. Uh, that yeah, I know, I know. I have to I have to open up the Buck College files at some point and Tell you tell you all the stuff that I was subjected to. But uh, people try to go around and define what art was, and it's not an, e- not an easy thing to do, not, not a straightforward definition. In fact, you get a lot of different definitions from different people. But evoking some response from the viewer, the reader, the listener, that's usually a, a baseline definition of what art is, right? It, it, it is something that, that produces a response in, in the people that are consuming that piece of art in one way or another. And that To Kill a Mockingbird makes people a little upset. I mean, it's it's a novel about a, a black man who is wrongfully accused of sexual assault against a white woman. And that this book would make people uncomfortable and so then it would get pulled from shelves is just indicative of the scholastic rot that is so pervasive these days. That schools no longer see themselves as places for just learning and the pursuit of truth. Schools are, even at the high school and college level, kind of like daycare centers. You know, just everyone has to be safe. Everyone has to be kind. of so it's it's juice time. You know, can you have some cookies? Uh, That's not the way it's supposed to be. And reading books that are a little disturbing, reading books that are thought-provoking, and that, yes, may even offend some people, uh, that's a necessary part of all of this. I mean, there are other books that are that have been pulled just because of the usage of certain racial slurs, most uh, most commonly because of uh, slurs that appear in the book against African-Americans. But how are we to know, you know, on, on the one hand, you have the and this is this all comes from the left, but you'll never see conservatives standing up. Oh, you know, we can't read this novel because it's, you know, in schools. Let's pull it from the shelves. The left. The book burners are on the left. You know, the, 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 maybe they're not burning, them, but they're pulling them from shelves and it can have the same effect. On the right, I think because we're so used to being uh, assaulted, sometimes physically, but I mean, uh, attacked for our ideas in general, that we have no X. Ex- we, we don't have this expectation. You don't have an expectation of a safe space. Right. Whether you're, you know, at a parent teacher meeting, talking to some parents in the hallway at the high school or you're in your office or. You know, on your way to pick up the kids, and you're talking to one of your friends. I mean, you know that if you say, "Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I think that Trump's doing a pretty good job of the economy." (gasps) Oh, how dare you! Trump is so evil. You're such a mean person. You know, you're used to that. So, because that's the response that a lot of conservatives will get, they understand that this is life. This is going to happen. But on the left, they think they can create a a perfect little universe where there'll be no scare there'll be no scary things that happen no mean books will be ever be read and i should know if shakespeare is too bothersome for you how are you going to read the bible i mean, just just putting that out there uh, i mean you you'd think that you might run into some problems there too i mean there's some pretty intense stuff in the bible everybody as you know right so where does this end it's just nonsense and it's so counterproductive and I don't like to always just harp, you know, point out every instance of it because it happens across the country. But it's important, and it's important for those you listening, especially if you have uh, school-age children or college-aged uh, kids or soon to be, that you know you encourage them to. It's easier than ever, um, and more effective than ever to, to come up with your own outside reading lists and and do your own research and. And question even if you don't. I don't advocate going toe to toe with professors, and I know this is a debate I've had with many conservatives because I don't want you to get a C minus and then not get the job you want on graduation because you're trying to make a point about what you believe. I'm, not, you know, you you, you can de- determine your own boundaries on this, but if you if you gotta if you gotta engage in a little bit of fakery to get past the progressive uh, gatekeepers in academia when you're a student, um, I think. I think you're allowed to, personally. I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, but coming up with your own reading list and your own approach to uh, what's necessary for your for one's education, for your kid's education, too, it's it's very important right now. Uh, you know, I, I was just, and I, I've got to go to a break here. I'm going long on this one, but I just saw the other day that 80% of New York City public school kids, look, New York, for a lot of you, I know you're, you don't come here, you don't really care that much what's happened in this town, but biggest city in the country so it's a pretty good sense of what's going on 80 percent of public school graduates who go to college so that's already a a subset right but 80 percent of those who go to college who graduate from new york city public schools need remedial math and reading training when they go to college community college whatever it may be eight out of ten so you can't just trust the system to teach your kids and you can't just trust the system to teach you and you certainly can't let them ban books or tell you that it's worthy of a trigger warning. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today in the Freedom Hut team. If you haven't already, please go and subscribe to the podcast as well. It's uh, Buck Sexton with America Now, and it's a great way to get somebody else who's not already listening to the show to join in all of the Freedom Hut fun. And the uh, iHeart app allows people to stream the show anywhere across the country or around the world, for that matter, as long as you have cellular or internet connection. Just go to the iHeart app and Buck Sexton. With America Now, you type that in and you are in business. Uh, also, I had, uh, right before I came on, uh, Miss Molly sent me a, uh, a photo of a litter of puppies that were just turned into a local shelter. I have a feeling I'm going to be going to see some puppies this weekend. Uh, I, have, I, have, I have a sneaking suspicion that the photo of the puppies in a cardboard box that were just dropped off at a, no, at a, it's a no-kill shelter. I had a feeling that they would, um, that it will result in me having to go and check out some puppies. Which, I mean, I'm not complaining, right? I mean, it's puppies. It's going to be great. But it made me think as well of a story from earlier in the day. And I look, we had that house guest of the the pit boxer mix. And you know, was a lot, was, she was a nice guy, but a uh, lot of lot of dog. Uh, you need to go a little smaller than 60, 65 pounds. Uh, but I was reading the story today about how dogs manipulate this is like this is now hashtag science. Dogs manipulate us with their eyes. So puppy dog eyes is actually a thing that they've they've been studying this now, you know this is what scientists do, I guess, right? Some of them. Uh, they've been studying this, and when dogs, you know, when they want food or they want attention, you know their eyes get bigger, and and they know, right? They know from the responses that when they give us the they give us the cute puppy face, even if they're not puppies anymore,
2: we go, okay, I'm gonna give you a, you know, you can have a treat, you know.
1: And I, look, I'm guilty as charged. Every time I get the cute puppy face, my parents have a white French bulldog, uh, Tallulah, and whenever Tallulah wants something, you know, she gives you the cute face, and then she kind of goes like, whoosh, whoosh, she makes like a little a little not a sneeze, but kind of just a little noise. I can't really explain it. And then she'll, she kind of tries to talk to you a little bit too, which is, you know, and Harold, the boxer, mix, a boxer mix does the same, does the same thing, you know, you know, when he wants food. And I'm like, you're killing me here, guys. Come on. I know what you're saying. You know, give me your treat. But they, but science now tells us that with the eyes, when they go, and they've got the eyes all wide. They know, man. They know they've got you. They know that that treat or that little piece of bacon you're hiding in the palm of your hand, you're gonna slip them under the table. It's just a matter of just a matter of a few a few more looks with those big puppy eyes. Oh, the puppy eyes! All right, can't help it. It's, it's what happens. Uh, we're gonna have a fun show tomorrow, my friends. Freestyle Friday in effect. Maybe even some uh, action movie quote Friday going on. So please join me then. And until then, chill tight.